welcome, friends, to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice or surge. This is the podcast where we explore the weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. My name is Nicola Torbett. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm recording this here in what is now known as Oakland, California. This is the unceded homeland of the Ohlone people, who are still very much here and active and taking leadership in this movement town. This podcast, as many of you know, is aimed at white Christians like me who want to respond to the call to dismantle white supremacy. We recognize that as white Christians, we have our own particular work to do, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. We are seeking to find and uproot white supremacy, settler colonialism, ableism, and other forms of oppression wherever they show up, including in our own Christian tradition. And in their place, we are sowing freedom dreams. We are building up a new world. That's also the song you are hearing throughout this podcast. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado, in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. And as you also may have heard, we're doing a special series this summer, looking at the Luke passages through a disability justice frame. Disability justice is a framework that challenges the fundamental ableism of our culture, the privileging of people with certain bodies and minds that fit some non-existent idea of normal. Developed primarily by queer and trans people of color, disability justice also calls attention to the way that ableism is all bound up with white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, and capitalism. In other words, it recognizes that we live intersectional lives. I'm super excited about this disability justice focus for our podcast because I find disability justice so thoroughly paradigm shifting. When we stop focusing on what is supposedly wrong with individual bodies and minds, those that we have labeled as disabled, and instead focus on how existing systems and structures are disabling of certain bodies and minds, and specifically those that do not adequately serve systems of power and profit, or that threaten to disrupt power, profit, or comfort, for example, bodies and minds that cost something to include, well, that shift in focus really changes what we notice, what we long for, and what we can imagine. And from there, what becomes possible. It's just super exciting. This week, We're going to be musing around who we identify with in parables, in scripture, in, you know, life, and where those people are positioned socially, and how that shapes our thinking about what is good and right and reasonable and moral, including what constitutes reasonable accommodation, to borrow the term from the Americans with Disabilities Act and what might be a more exciting and delightful and voluptuous alternative to that, and also one that positions us better when the bottom drops out and we need help. With that said, let's go straight to our scripture for this week, which is about someone who needs help, 
We're going to be looking at Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. Okay, here's Luke 16, 1 through 13. As you listen, notice if there's anything that surprises or puzzles you about this story. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now, now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? That one answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he said another, And how much do you know? I'm sorry. Then he said to another debtor, And how much do you owe? That one replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If, then, you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. It's such a strange little story, isn't it? It has baffled many people over the years. The Bible translators can't even agree on what to call this story. Is it the parable of the dishonest steward? Or of the unjust manager? Or of the shrewd manager? Is this steward or manager or debt collector crooked or clever? or both? And how is it that he gets praised by his boss for cutting that boss's profits and falsifying the books? So let's review the story. So there's this guy, and he's kind of a middleman. He's not the poorest of the poor, but he is dependent on a wealthy family for his sustenance. He's most likely what was called a retainer, sort of a high-end servant not so different from the servants who, for example, are given talents and told to invest them. Remember that story? It's kind of like that. 
This guy's job is to manage the affairs of a wealthy family, including collection of the debts owed to that family from the poor people who worked that family's land, or possibly, in this case, who were small-time merchants who bought that family's produce that had no doubt been grown by peasant sharecroppers. Now, we know that the economy in first-century Palestine was a debt economy in which the majority of the people were barely scraping by, and in order to make, a, to make ends meet, they would have to borrow from the wealthy families on whom they were dependent. Because they almost never had enough to pay back that debt, they would go further and further into debt as the years went by. And the wealthy, you guessed it, would get richer and richer. I don't know if this sounds familiar to anyone. <laughs> Excuse me while I clear my throat. But anyway... The only slightly saving grace was that Jewish people were forbidden to charge interest when they made loans. That's in the laws passed down from God through Moses. However, wealthy people, whether Jewish or Roman, got around this prohibition by folding the interest into the price of the goods. For example, let's say you were borrowing a bunch of wheat that was worth, let's say, $80. The lender might set the cost of the borrowed wheat instead at $100. He didn't say he was charging 20% interest because that was illegal, but he was. I know that we're down in the weeds here, but this detail is going to be important later. Anyway, our middleman, our debt collector, our retainer, is in trouble. Rumors have been circulating about him and those have gotten back to his boss and he is about to be fired. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He says he is too weak to dig and too ashamed to beg. Too weak to dig and too ashamed to beg. I read a lot of commentaries on this passage that accuse this manager of being lazy because he said he was too weak to dig. Friends, that is just straight up ableism, steeped in capitalist pseudo-morality it lines up perfectly with right-wing rhetoric about freeloaders and so-called welfare moms and people looking for a handout in the form of, say, student loan forgiveness. My question is, why is it so hard to believe that this person might have a condition that makes it impossible for him to do manual labor? Digging here stands in most likely for day labor, and it is unlikely that someone who appears to have a disability or chronic illness or any form of visible weakness would get hired as a day laborer from the marketplace. That means our friend, chronically without work, would end up at the very bottom of the social caste system as a beggar. Think Lazarus outside the rich man's gate. Think hunger and increasing debilitation and premature death. This is the precarity with which most people at that time were living. It's also the precarity in which too many people live today. So our friend is understandably freaked out, and he cooks up a plan to make friends with the very people he has been helping his wealthy employer exploit. He goes around and reduces these folks' debts by 20 to 50% in the hopes that they will offer him hospitality and help him survive when he loses his job. Yeah, it's self-interested, sure, but the debt relief is real and substantial. But, uh-oh, 
The boss realizes what his manager has done as his parting act. What do you think is going to happen? We've heard enough parables that end with servants getting killed or cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? But wait a second. Instead, this guy gets praised, commended, it says, for being clever, for gaming the system. This has sent Bible interpreters into absolute paroxysms of consternation, because we have this tendency to read the most powerful person in the story, in this case the wealthy lender, as a stand-in for God. And why would God praise dishonesty? O-M-G. Well, let's talk about it. First of all, let's look at this tendency to see the rich man as an allegorical figure representing God. This means that when we talk about being children of God, or longing to reflect the image of God, we are striving to become more like a rich man? But of course, that is what we are taught to aspire to in this country. We are taught to aspire up, to climb the social ladder, right? We are taught to identify with the wealthy and the privileged. And that shapes how we think. It shapes our morality. There's a deeply embedded assumption that paying back one's debt is a moral obligation. It is right and good for debts to be carefully tracked and fully repaid. That's a marker of a good and upstanding person. And defaulting on a loan is a moral failure, right? Right? Well, we certainly heard a lot of that rhetoric following the news of President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, didn't we? Lots of talk of laziness and freeloading and lack of responsibility and moral laxity. But of course, the rhetoric doesn't tell the whole story. It doesn't even tell the bulk of the story. In his book, Debt the First 5,000 Years, David Graeber unveils the ways supposed morality is deployed to mask and protect a fundamentally violent debt-based economic system. Using his argument to examine our parable, we might ask, who is unjust here, the manager or the rich man or the economic system in which both are embedded? Who is lazy, the person too weak to dig, or the rich man who sits back and makes money off his own money, not even bothering to collect his own debts? Who is more dishonest, the manager who falsifies the books in the poor people's favor, or the rich man who surreptitiously adds forbidden interest into the cost of the loan? Remember how the steward reduced the loans by 20 to 50 percent? Well, it turns out that that reduction most likely reflected the amount of interest the rich man was charging. By eliminating that interest, the shrewd manager was not only lightening the debtor's burdens, but also bringing his boss into compliance with God's law, prohibiting interest. Maybe that's why the boss praises the man. William Herzog, in his book Parables as Subversive Speech, calls this moment a moment of communitas, when social barriers suddenly dissolve and everyone is joined together in some kind of liminal space. In this case, it seems, the transition to the economy of God. 
In that moment, everyone rejoices together in the forgiveness of debts. But you'd totally miss this, this glorious celebration, if you stayed hung up on an individualized, atomized view of morality that condemns the steward rather than the system in which he is embedded. And that's exactly what most commentators have done with this passage. All of this has me thinking a lot about the ways that talk of morality is deployed to mask the violence of oppressive systems, including white supremacy and ableism, and how that impedes our efforts to come into solidarity with those who have been most harmed. Let's turn there now. ever there was a time that we needed solidarity, that time is now. Natural disasters are proliferating exponentially as climate change escalates. Our economic system is teetering, and some say likely to collapse under its own ethereal credit-based weight before too long. I've been listening to a lot of interviews with Alnor Lada, a climate activist with an advanced degree from the London School of Economics. And he explains in layperson's terms that our current economic system requires 3% growth every year, which may not sound like much, but it actually means that the economy, in order to stay afloat, must double every 20 years. It is not materially possible for this to happen at this point. We cannot manufacture twice the number of iPhones or Priuses we have already surpassed too many of the Earth's thresholds. This means, if it's true, that the economy will collapse within the next 20 years. The problems of the shrewd manager pale in comparison. Now is the time for us to make friends for ourselves with dishonest wealth. We're going to need each other to survive. Now is the time to switch allegiances to stop identifying with the morality of the rich man and start identifying with the dispossessed. There are more of us, and we are going to need each other to survive. Now, part of what it means to switch allegiances is to reimagine all our ideas about morality. Christian ethicist Miguel de la Torre has written and lectured often about a so-called Christian ethics that is imagined from the center or the mainstream and thus serves to prop up an unjust status quo and ends up blaming the victims of injustice for so-called immorality. We place the burden of immorality in the wrong place. That's what happened in our parable today, right? He argues, De La Torre argues, that we need to do ethics instead from the margins of society, from the point of view of those who have been excluded and pushed out. If we switch allegiances in this way, if we stop depending on the wealthy to provide our sustenance and instead cast our lot with the poor, how then do our ideas about morality shift? What do we think now about things like work slowdowns? arson, property destruction, subterfuge, public shaming, hiding the truth. 
if our own survival depends on those who have had to rely on these tactics in order to survive. William Herzog calls them the weapons of the weak. It's something to think about. Perhaps we'd be less likely to think of the manager in this parable as lazy for not being able to dig. Perhaps our ideas about reasonable accommodations will change. That's the language of the ADA, reasonable accommodations. But I'm wondering if it's time, maybe, for us to commit to unreasonable accommodations. See, what I'm noticing is that just as we are taught to identify with people of wealth, we are taught to identify with people who have certain kinds of bodies and minds. We could describe those bodies and minds, I think, any of us could, though none of us actually have them. That's the problem. We all know what we're supposed to aspire to, and very few, if any of us, measure up. It might make more sense for us to identify with the guy who was too weak to dig. I'll never forget listening to Adrian Marie and Autumn Brown interview Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasina on the podcast, How to Survive the End of the World. It's one of those moments that is emblazoned in my mind. I can see where I was on the freeway when she said certain things. I'll link to that episode in the transcript so that you can listen for yourself. But I'll just say it was the first time I really, really got how much we need the wisdom and skills of people who have been navigating this ableist world with disabilities. Leah talks a lot in that podcast about how people with disabilities have been creating mutual aid and collective care networks forever, and just how creative people have learned to be in figuring out how to get everyone's needs met when conditions are not friendly. Friends, we are going to need that because conditions are not friendly to most of us now, and they're getting less friendly all the time. We're going to need each other to survive. Like the clever manager, we need to stop aspiring up and start aspiring down into community, into mutual aid, into collective care. It's time to make friends for ourselves with dishonest wealth. And by the way, all wealth is dishonest because this whole system is dishonest. It's time to use dishonest wealth to make the kind of outrageous, unreasonable, luxurious, delightful, voluptuous accommodations that will accommodate all of us with all of our glorious needs and gifts. Let's use dishonest wealth to build up a new world. Amen. What accommodations can you begin making right now in your faith community or community space? Who are the people you can organize with to make that happen? Who are the people in your life who have disabilities and what do they need? Now, as you answer that, keep in mind that the answer might be you. (laughs) I noticed that I have tended to ignore the ways my own body and mind don't comfortably fit. And I have the privilege to do that, granted, but seriously, what if we made a world that worked for all of us, all of us? Now imagine 
the fascinating, brilliant people you might get to meet and get to be in community with if you make those accommodations. I was talking with a friend this week about how institutional racism plays out and how it ends in very little diversity. And I think institutional ableism works in a similar way. People think, well, we only have one person who could use ASL interpretation. It just doesn't make sense to spend the money when it only affects one person. But A, that one person is the whole world to God. We all are. And B, how many other brilliant, amazing, deaf, and hard-of-hearing people might come if you made that accommodation? What friends might you make for yourself for the end of the world? Now multiply that by every imaginable kind of so-called disability and think about how many people you might get to love, people who can't show up now because your space doesn't work for them. So that's the kind of dreaming I invite you into this week. And since we've been in the habit of giving you reading and study suggestions, I'll recommend that episode of How to Survive the End of the World with Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasina, as well as Leah's book, Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice. Just get ready to have your mind blown. So that's what I've got for you this week, folks. We'd love to hear what you think of this episode and of the work we're doing here generally. What are you making of it? How are your own movement struggles unfolding, and what are you learning from those? You can comment on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages, or you can fill out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org. That's also where you can sign up for Surge Faith Updates, and find transcripts for every episode, which include references, resources, and action links. We appreciate your feedback very much and are especially eager to hear from BIPOC folks, people with disabilities, people who are not Christian. How are we doing? What's working and what's not? We love your input. Finally, we want to thank our sound editor for this week, Claire Hitchens. Thank you so much, Claire. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for grounded accountability, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.